Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about theology, culture, and the life of the church in the culture. Uh, once again, my name is Derek Rishmaui, and I'm joined by the full cast and crew, uh, Alistair Roberts, Andrew Wilson, and Matthew Lee Anderson, now newly M-Phil edition from Oxon. Uh, Matt just, just finished up his, his degree there, and so he is extra special smart and so we have decided to allow him to continue on the show um that's very kind now now if you guys would all just agree with me from here on out on everything i would appreciate it well well no no not gonna go for that i I, i'm not i don't know because we got we got two other we got we got a couple other big hitters in here you might be able to you might be able to strong arm me but um i don't know about andrew and alistair uh, moving on, though, to, to the order of business today, uh, we are going to broach a very interesting subject, a subject that, uh, as we'll see, kind of touches a whole host of conversations in, in theology and, and the church today. But it's a classic subject, the idea of divine accommodation, okay? Uh, not hotel accommodations, but, but divine accommodation in Revelation. So the idea is, the classic idea has been something along the lines of um, God uh, in revealing himself has to accommodate himself to our ways of knowing. Uh, he's, he's a whole ontological step up. He's a whole level of being and knowledge up. And so he, he in some ways, how can humans know, an in, uh, finite humans know an infinite God? Uh, so theologians have talked about that in the past and and this might seem like a kind of abstract up there in the clouds uh, concept but really this has implications for all kinds of debates going on in the church today uh, as to how we read scripture for instance especially in the old testament um, how how in a sense how real are the depictions of god that we find in the old testament when it comes to uh, say his ethical commands was God's commands for a sacrificial system or, or, or the conquest or whatever, are those, are those God as he really is or are those kind of accommodations to meet people where they're at? Or, or what about science and scripture? And those first two or three chapters of Genesis, are they blow by blow, you know, play by play descriptions of how God created the earth? Or, or, is, this, or is this kind of what we say accommodated knowledge, stuff that's fitted to our, uh, our ways of understanding and knowing? Uh, and so you start to see immediately that this theme of, of the way God reveals himself is shot through a whole bunch of the debates in the church today. Uh, so just to start us, we're going to go ahead and read a section from Herman Bavink, uh, Dutch, Dutch Reformed theologian, uh, about 100, uh, 115 years ago, in Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 2. We'll throw the quote up. But he has five theses on God's kind of accommodation uh, in Revelation. And then from there we'll get going. Uh, but Bavink in uh, Volume 2, God and Creation, says this. He says, All our knowledge of God is from and through God, grounded in his revelation, that is, in objective reason. In order to convey the knowledge of him to his creatures, God has to come down to the level of his creatures and accommodate himself to their powers of comprehension. The possibility of this condescension cannot be denied since it is given with creation. This is with the existence of finite being. Point four. Our knowledge of God is always only analogical in character. 
that is shaped by analogy to what can be discerned of God in his creatures, having as its object not God in himself in his knowable essence, but God in his revelation, his relation to us, in things that pertain to his natural, in his habitual disposition to his creatures. Accordingly, this knowledge is only a finite image, a faint likeness, and creaturely impression of the perfect knowledge that God has of himself. Point five. Finally, our knowledge is knowledge of God is nevertheless true, pure, and trustworthy because it has for its foundation God's self-consciousness, its archetype, and his self-revelation in the cosmos. That is Bavink on the subject. Um, so with that kind of grounding, that's like the, the uh, kind of a classic Orthodox exposition of the idea of accommodation or analogy. I wanted to hand it over to Alistair right now um, just to see what he, uh, where he'd like to go, kind of a first weigh-in on, on, on the importance or the significance of this doctrine, um, kind of caveats maybe on the traditional way or or not, or, or on recent formulations of it. So, Alistair, I'm going to hand it right on over to you and uh, see what you got to say about it, and we'll go to the rest of the crew. Thanks, Derek. One of the things that we notice, I believe, with the traditional doctrine of accommodation is that it's founded upon God's action towards us, that God accommodates himself to human speech, to human cultural forms, in order to reveal himself to us. What we see, I think, in a lot of liberal theology, and a lot of theology nowadays in evangelical circles has been moving in this direction, is the idea of human symbol-making as the process of representing God within human thought, and the idea of divine accommodation being put to one side. And so, rather than our language, the language that's given in Scripture, being God's accommodation to our speech, it is rather a matter of human symbol-making in a creative manner, trying to capture something about God. But it's fundamentally a human activity rather than an act of divine accommodation. And I believe that this is a key point to concentrate upon. Uh, Matt, Andrew? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit confused, maybe, or I'd like to hear more about that difference, Alistair. So there's, it seems like there's a couple of ways of cutting this up. We could say something like, Look, in the Old Testament, God accommodates himself to, um, to that culture. And that culture has certain um, presuppositions, certain givens, like um, the scientific framework, or let's say a certain kind of militarism, right? They, they get warriors and what warriors are because they, they live in uh, a world where that's a, a real... Um, where there are just lots of warriors around. But we now know that um, warfare and those sorts of metaphors and so on are um, no longer relevant. Uh, and so God could accommodate himself to us in different ways, right? So if you have a kind of anthropology that, that has a built-in type of progress in it, um, it doesn't necessarily seem like it would impinge on the doctrine of accommodation, is what I'm trying to say. It seems like you could say something like, God is still accommodating himself to us. It's just that we've kind of evolved to the point where warfare imagery, um, archaic notions of science, et cetera, et cetera, archaic notions of sexuality, like 
those are kind of all passe, and we've gotten beyond that, but God's still accommodating himself to our speech. Okay. Um, that, so that, I, I realize, and I'm just putting this out by way of hypothesis, I'm not, I don't agree with this. I'm, I, I think I'm just trying to sharpen the, 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 um, the issue here. Yeah, so th there's different ways that, that the doctrine's being deployed nowadays. So, um, but what's what's interesting though, I think in what I'm hearing you saying is that the move is, hey, in the past God accommodated Himself in X, Y, and Z ways. So now, as we come up with kind of uh, different pictures of God, so before He was warrior king, etc., well, fit for the patriarchal culture. But now, uh, with the rise of uh, you know ecological awareness, uh, feminist theory, all that kind of stuff, we can now shape and form um, new images for God that, through which he's accommodating himself to us today, uh, God as mother, as um, body of the world or whatever it is, and kind of just move, this move from, well, he accommodates himself in scripture, so now we create new images for him to accommodate himself with um, through or something on that order, in, in which case we start creating images apart from the biblical narrative. Is that what I'm? Is that what the the issue you're kind of bringing up, in a sense, or, or am I broaching a different one? No, I think that's it. I mean, within this analogical structure, so we know God by analogy. Um, uh, our terms of reference are different than the terms of reference for the Bible, right? The mm -hmm. the, the analogies that say we have. Uh, an internal understanding of we we live those that we sort of grasp the terms that are being applied to God um, are mm -hmm. th those terms are just different and so there's still potentially accommodation in one sense happening but the analogies that we're going to use may just be totally different than the analogies that scripture uses that would be a kind of liberal argument in one sense um, that would be framed around accommodation. Yeah, that that'd be that'd be one that I've I think I've seen before, and um, and I think just as a as a as a Protestant, there's just this element of this is where a doctrine of sola scriptura or um, kind of an analogy of faith comes in, and and you think well that that's some of these metaphors you're coming up with are just completely unhinged from scripture. In which case, what what justification or grounding do you have? for that being the analogy, because the classic doctrine, at least what you see Bavink and certainly uh, like expositors like Calvin say, the emphasis is that, well, normally it would be idolatrous to take up images and use them of God. Like God is transcendent, holy, other. There's this whole, there's a whole set of commandments that are specifically, hey, don't make up false images of me. But scripture gives us authority to picture God in such and such a way because God picked up these images and authorized their use. And so we use them because God said, these are good. And, and, and he's defined them for us in their particular use in scripture. It's like, Father, yeah, use Father. Also, use it in this way, in the way that I show you in the narrative. That's the kind of Father I am, not not like your father or so-and-so's father. You know, that's the, that's the kind of the, dot, I'd say the Protestant approach to it or like the more classic approach to it uh, as opposed to more of a liberal, let's just grab ones that we find helpful and use them uh, approach. Um, Andrew, 
Uh, yes. You're a silent mayor in the corner, which is unusual. It's Alistair's job. Well, thank you. I kind of, kind of you said, I, I, I would distinguish, you see, a, a, another another division, a way of looking at the, the question. Okay. So there's the, there's what's the defense you have against um, against inventing a new a new analogy for God and saying, well, there you go, they used to do it this way, I do it this way. So there's that point, which is the one you're raising there, and the things Matt, Matt's talking about. But there's also the reverse point, which is what is to stop people saying, no, God accommodated himself there, and therefore that, in the, in the scriptures, and therefore that... Um, because he accommodated himself to their understanding, they thought that uh, emotions were in the bowels rather than in the brain or whatever. Um, and as a result, he's accommodating himself on something like that and about the mustard seed being the smallest seed and about blah, blah, blah. And because of those things, he's obviously accommodating himself about all manner of other things. So there's an actually a much more negative, is rather than me trying to come up with a new way of thinking about God, it's actually me rejecting old ways of thinking about God by saying, well, hang on, he, he accommodated himself in the way he expressed all sorts of basic worldview-related facts, and then you get into the earth on pillars and you get into the cosmology and all those sorts of things. And then from there, you would then say that the same is, of course, true as Matt already alluded to, but they were a warrior nation, so of course he accommodated himself into that as well. So rather than saying, here's a new idea about God I'm seeking sanction for, is actually also a, an, here's an old idea about God I'm seeking to reject and say that is just invalid. I'm not inventing a new one, I'm just saying this whole thing about God being the, you know, the tribal deity, the Joshua conquest thing is the same sort of accommodation that's taking place, albeit at a larger level, than is happening when, as is happening rather, when God refers to, you know, when a psalmist writes something like, you know, you set the earth on its pillars, it shall never be moved. Um, and, and it's finding out where the wedge is, finding out, okay, is, because I, I, don't, I don't accept that wholesale, but I, I do find it challenging sometimes to work out at what point the, I would say no. That's a, that's accommodating within a degree of their linguistic and worldview form. But this is a completely distorted picture of God uh, that you're proposing here by rejecting a huge section of biblical witness. But I don't find it easy to actually nail exactly where that where the difference between those two is. And it's the sort of thing I thought Alistair might well have thought about. So. Yeah. Yeah. So solve so this all, for us, Alistair. Solve it. Your only hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so where, where, how do you say, uh, I'll sharpen it up, how, how do you, because we all, we'll all agree, I think we all accept the doctrine of combination to some degree, and it's like and like, unlike and all that kind of thing, but, but there's that difficulty of knowing, all right, so I don't think the earth is set on pillars, and that there is actually a chunk of water above the sky and all that, and that I think is an accommodated picture that God used, um, but at the same time, I don't want to say, like we've talked about before, with the Israel narratives, God accommodated himself, but like he never really actually commanded any of those activities and, and he would never actually judge anybody that was just an accommodated picture of him. So how do you start? I mean, how, how do you do it in a sense? Yeah, solve it. Where's the line? One of the first points to start with is recognizing a difference between two approaches of viewing God's relationship to culture. One of the approaches that seems to be increasingly popular is the idea of culture almost as shackles that God has to um, come under, that God has to accept the limits of human nature, of human culture, and work within those limits. And what I think is lost in that picture is a sense of God's creative and providential work, that humankind is a suitable means for divine revelation because God created humankind in his image. 
And so when we're talking about the incarnation, for instance, this has been this has been a point that's been emphasized that mm. by theologians in the tradition that humanity is a a fitting form for God to reveal himself and to be incarnated in because humanity was created in his image. God couldn't be incarnated as um, a cat in the same way. I mean, we can talk about the line of the tribe of Judah on another day, but I think <laughs> there is a particular <laughs> there's a particular aspect of human nature that makes it fitting for God to reveal himself within it. He created humankind as theomorphic, and so divine truth can be represented in an anthropomorphic manner. Also, when we come to human culture, when we're talking about Israelite culture, for instance, Israelite culture isn't something that exists in and of itself, completely independent of divine action. Rather, we see God's providence and history establishing this culture, um, shepherding this culture, establishing its forms of worship, all these sorts of things. So the idea that this culture exists as a totality and then God has to act within that, I think, is mistaken. So there is need, obviously a need for balance here, but... I think it's important to recognize that the extreme portrait that we have of God being limited by culture should be should be rejected straight off the bat. So so then the issue is not I mean cuz cuz there's there's a couple of angles that the there's a couple of rootings that the 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 doctrine of accommodation takes its takes its roots in in a sense is one is is the infinite nature of God, two the finite understanding of humanity and three is the fallenness of human nature, so it's a fit. It's a fit vehicle as created, and culture is a fit vehicle as created. But yet, as fallen, it's distorted, right? So, so humanity doesn't always, you know, human fathers don't always mirror or image God the way they're supposed to. Human cultures don't always mirror or image God the way they're supposed to. There are there are dark and ugly cultural practices um, that uh, God wants no part of, and so. The question then becomes, okay, well, how far is, I mean, how far is God willing to, to accommodate and bend and maybe even accommodate things that he, he basically doesn't like uh, in order to graciously, in a sense, reveal the main point? So you think of, say, the sacrificial system or, or certain kind of laws in the Old Testament, like where, where you say, well, I don't, I don't know that the full... That's not. That doesn't seem like God's ideal. Like like some of the slavery institutions in the Old Testament. That doesn't seem like God's ideal. That seems like an an accommodated stopgap, in a sense. Uh, like like Jesus says with Moses. You know, Moses gave you the writ of divorce because of the, the hardness of your heart. Um, but that's not his ideal. You know, ethical course of action within within his nation. So, um, I'm just wondering. Uh, yeah, how do you, how do you how do, how do you how do we go about ex establishing the in a sense? And this we're moving into yeah, culture and culture and uh, culture and scripture, culture and God. But but how how do we start kind of laying the groundwork for that and, and establishing? Okay, how much is God accommodating just finiteness, and how much is God accommodating fallenness? <sighs> Matt, that silence you hear is all of us not having an answer. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> now look, I mean, uh, some of these things, so, so some of Andrew's points about the differences, one thing that I think it's important to do is maybe not take an architectonic approach to the question and say, we need to have one answer that 
uh, applies to or solves every particular question in the same way. So what we do with respect to the cosmology of scripture may not be um, the same with what we do with respect to the anthropology presupposed in, in scripture. Um, I don't know okay. cos cosmologically terribly well. I mean, that's just not my area at all. Um, but I, contrary to what Andrew might have hinted at, I'm a lot more prone to um, locate emotions, for instance, in the variety of the body parts that um, the Old Testament does. I, I actually think there are ways of reading the Old Testament anthropology that demonstrate it is massively sophisticated. Um, and I, I think Paul's anthropology would stand up, stands up well uh, against any uh, 21st century cognitive neuroscience. Um, so there's a way in which I think like continuity and discontinuity may not be the same in, within every aspect of the world uh, that we come across in scripture. So in one sense, I, th I think, is this accommodation due to the fall? Is this accommodation an aspect of creation? Like what, what's, what's grounding this? How can we have affirm this or deny that? Um, it may be the case that there is no firm rule that um, we can apply where we just have to evaluate each one on its merits. More, more of an art, less a science then? I mean, this is me cheating and giving you a long-winded way of saying, I have no idea, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right, though, that there are distinct questions raised by distinct um, issues like slavery and um, something like whether God is to be spoken of as father. These are very different questions, and there are different means of answering them from within Scripture. I think that the question of accommodation needs to be approached, first of all, with a recognition that accommodation is primarily about revelation, um, not about obstacles to revelation, which is how it right. often seems to be framed, that God's truth is accommodated so that it might be revelatory. God babbles to us like babes, as um, Oregon and Calvin spoke about it, because he wants us to understand himself. Um, God speaks of himself as a father so that we might understand him, not to have this obfuscating cultural web crushing his true identity beneath that. In the same way God speaks about the um, emotions associated with body parts, he speaks about the, nation, the nature of the creation of the universe, like the creation of a temple or um, this laying out of the heavens in a seven-day um, process the heavens and the earth in the seven-day process so that we might understand it yeah. and that lack of a sense of the force of divine revelation I think is one of the key problems at root in modern approaches to the doctrine that we don't pay attention to the character of the forms that God chooses and how they may be for instance more apt than our preferred forms so how is it that the form that God chooses to reveal himself in, his creation in, in Genesis 1 and 2, how is it that that might be better than our, than our more historic scientific forms that we're accustomed to? I don't think that yeah. we tarry enough with those questions. Yeah, I, it, it's, it, it's, I was going to say there, there's that movement right there, um, the, the fact that his accommodation, his accommodation is not about, um, it's not about obfuscation, it's about revelation 
that is such an important one because there, there's this quote that I love by um, Kevin Van Hooser. He, uh, it's in Remythologizing Theology, and he says, those who would be honest to God must strive to avoid both pride and sloth in their God talk. Theological pride overestimates the adequacy of human language and thought. Theological sloth underestimates the importance of responding to the provocations of God's self-revelation. The one goes before destruction, the other preempts instruction. Yet it is hard to miss the recurring theme that God wills to communicate and make himself known. The word of the Lord came to, the Lord said. Theology is ultimately irresponsible if it fails either to attend to what God says or to think about the nature of the one who addresses us. Is that the, the issue is not necessarily, uh, the, the issue is sometimes we, we, get, we get so caught up in avoiding theological pride and say, well, all our language is, is, is inadequate. You know, the, the, the freshman in philosophy class takes one philosophy class. Like, what can we really know about God? You know, us and ourselves. And it's like, okay, yeah, you, you're, you're pretty small. You're dumb. You're like 19 or something. But, but how competent is God as a speaker? Is the, is the corresponding flip side. You might be small and dumb, and that's true, but God is infinitely powerful and infinitely capable as a speaker. He's, you know, the grand rhetorician, I think is uh, the way Van, Van Hooser put it. And so I love that emphasis, that pushback, Alistair, you brought up, that this is not a roadblock. This is, uh, this is a bridge, in a sense, is more, more, the, more the emphasis. Um, and another another thing that's occurring to me as we're talking about this is just because I, I brought like the question earlier but without any particularly good answer to it really I hadn't really thought thought it through carefully um, thanks, Andrew. so no so this is really helping <laughs> um, but I think what one of the uh, another factor really is that is the extent to which um, because accommodation is is related to the extent to which God is subverting or not current human knowledge in the particular manner in which the revelation is coming right so in in the case of when god is revealing who he is he is continually wanting to challenge and shape and take on and subvert under, mistaken understandings of deity and the classic of all the ways in which god does that in the exodus story and as they come out of exodus and he's saying i'm the lord who heals you i'm the lord you know I, I'm, I'm a completely different kind of god from the one you thought i was because you've had all your idea of divinity shaped by pharaoh and egypt and so on so there's there's a very active theological subversion taking place in divine accommodation if you like in the in in, in theological terms about what we believe about god but god's intention doesn't seem at all to be it say on a level of cosmology he's not trying to subvert cosmology in the same sense he's not it is not important to god in the same way that he align israelite cosmology with what we currently understand about the universe that is not a, that's not a priority at all. So continuing to use forms of speech that to a varying degree reflected what they believed and not being forced to challenge that or change it is of a very different order because it's referring to a, a largely non-theological, I mean obviously there was theological ramifications to pagan cosmology, but the issue, he has subverted the theology of creation completely that other people, other nations would have held by saying this is entirely a result of divine fiat, this is creation from nowhere, this is man in the image of God. So all the theological and anthropological subversions are taking place even as a lot of cosmological subversions are being left hanging and not done and some of us might read back into the text and think why didn't you just tell them how big the universe was or how long it take you to build it or what shape it was or what the earth was built on and and but God doesn't because 
it's it's very important to God, it would seem, to reveal the true nature of God and the true nature of man, but not necessarily to reveal the true nature of the substance of the universe. And as a result, perhaps the parallel I raised between the earth not built on pillars, therefore, is God a, a warrior God, or is that just a combination as well? That's where the wedge exists, the question I'm asking before. I, I wonder if that is where the wedge exists, because it's referring to subverting the... the theology of God they might have had rather than the view of the universe or something which God's intention in Revelation was not bound up with. In other words, is it a worship is this a worship issue or not? You knowing that there's water over the earth or not, you knowing that the earth is six billion years old or not, is far less important for you to worship and respond properly to the true God than knowing that he is a warrior who will crush the enemies of his people. Uh, that that seems to me that there in, in that sense you, you might say that there's this uh, you you come in a sense to uh, redemptive historical concerns the the storyline of the Bible is focused on certain things and not so much on other things and it seems then that the the closer you get to the center of the redemptive historic historical concerns covenant uh, you know in a sense that's why there's far more material on God's in a sense, ethical characteristics, his love, his chesed, his, and so forth, and his, say, uh, immutability or impassibility or uh, eternity. Although those, ha those have impl ethical implications, they're not quite as immediately, um, immediately live for the Israelite who's supposed to call on the name of the Lord in a time of trouble. Um, that's kind of what I'm hearing that might, might be, in a sense, in a sense, where I'm I'm going in terms of which, if you imagine it as like a series of concentric circles, concerns which are closer to the to the center of redemptive historical concern at the center of the narrative, um, cosmology is kind of out on a, on a on a farther ring. Although it has it has worship implications, like don't worship other gods. They didn't make anything. I made it all. Just just get that out of your head, and that's all you really need to know. Um, does that make is that is that kind of is that dangerous, or is that does that kind of seem like a sensible move? I mean, I don't, I don't want to downplay the role of cosmology uh, as a worship issue. I mean, all those morning stars are going to sing for joy, um, and the the imagery of cosmology within uh, the temple, and um, I mean, it's just cosmology is really, really, really important. Um, so I, I, I'm a little nervous about saying that the principle works because cosmology is in one sense less important than anthropology, though I think that there is a, a you know, I, and I proposed that kind of division tacitly, I think, earlier. Um, so there may be something there, but at the same time, I want to say something like, yeah, cosmology, man, that's, that's really, really, really important. I do think, can I just add on two other things that I think are, are tied to this, though? Um, Absolutely. One, um, if we take this, things that are tied to redemptive, salvific history are more central. One of the underlying premises of that is that not all times of history are created equal or equally revelatory, right? There are certain times, certain seasons that uh, where that God will that that are more closely able to um, uh, reflect or uh, communicate God's own self-disclosure uh, and Alistair's point I just want to return to it because he made it um, about providence and God selecting those times and, and sort of certain cultures being uh, more 
closely tied to his divine activity is just really, really important. And that I think avoids the kind of liberalizing of history that it's easy to do with a narrative of progress. Oh, we just know so much more than they did about the, the cosmos. Therefore, we can create um, all the metaphors and analogies that we want on our own. No, that doesn't quite work. Not all times in history are created equal. I think the other thing that's tied to this is something like uh, uh, what, what Andrew had said. Um, within accommodation, the point is for God to reveal himself to us, but also to deepen our understanding of the possibilities inherent within human humanity and human flourishing. So when he says, you know, uh, he's the father from whom all earthly fathers are derived their name, that has ethical content, the accommodation, he speaks to us that way, not only to, to like connect to us so that we understand him, but to uh, help us see the possibilities of transcendence um, because of the incarnation, to show us uh, how we are to live uh, in ways that are deeper than we would be able to realize without that accommodation. Um, sometimes it's subversive to use Andrew's language, but sometimes it's just expansive, accommodation is. It shows us what's beyond our own categories, and I, and I think that's really important to, to kind of underscore here. Yeah. That actually... I completely agree with I completely agree with Matt there. I think one of the points that we often see in these current debates is a suspicion cast back upon the Old Testament in particular and the forms of accommodation that we see within it. And for instance, the cosmology of Genesis one, we tend to see that in terms of there's the accommodated truth of Genesis one, but then there's our unaccommodated scientific truth that God is babbling to them like babes, but we see the truth. Whereas if we take Genesis 1 seriously as revelation, we will recognize that our materialistic and reductionist understanding of creation is profoundly wrong. The universe is primarily about doxology, worship of God, and enjoyment of the the universe as this realm of revelation, of fellowship, and all these sorts of things. And it's something that speaks directly to our concept and breaks apart our narrow view of creation and as Matt was saying expands our vision so that we can capture something of transcendence within the creation that God has given to us. Also as we start to cast doubt upon these forms of accommodation in the Old Testament what we often do is establish this blank slate where we can't really say anything truthfully about God and what happens in that situation is that our own notions start to fill the gap, that we end up projecting our visions, our ethical ideals, our um, symbols and imagery for God upon this blank that we've created by yeah. the doubt that we've established in a divine accommodation. And what we really need is to develop a new confidence in revelation. And I believe that the traditional doctrine of accommodation has established this confidence. Yeah, that that's actually a point that uh, Kevin Van Hooser makes over and over again in that book, uh, Remythologizing Theology. Uh, it's it's really re-narrativizing theology, and it, the whole thing is an exercise in in uh, arguing for the basically using the narrative t in in uh, in conjunction with uh, you know a theology of accommodation, analogy, etc. Say this is God really saying something about Himself, uh, and this is how we avoid 
refocusing on the narrative is how we avoid Feuerbach and projection theologies. And he does a whole bunch more. But that, that just reminds me again, in, in another way, this just to open up another little can of worms before we end here. Um, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, you know, two or three years ago, however many years ago, everybody was freaking out about the hell chapters and the universalism, whatever. The chapter that actually drove me crazy was his chapter on atonement, on what the cross does, because he took uh, a sort of approach of, hey, look at look at the New Testament authors, look at what they did. They grabbed a lot of images from their time and place, and just kind of they were so excited about what happened. They just kind of used images. To, to convey some things and let's not get too tied to the images. Maybe we create new ones to help people today, etc. And what frustrated me was uh, the man who earlier was so set on like us understanding Old Testament narrative history, etc. To, to understand God um, was ignoring the way that the, the point you had made earlier about providence and ordering things, the way that God had providentially ordered and created a matrix of meaning in the Old text. Old Testament sacrificial system, the, the 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 priestly setup, the prophetic setup, the kingly setup, and all of that. I mean, that's half of I think what God's doing in the history of Israel is setting up a narrative in which God's action in Christ could make meaning, could 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 mean what it did. That you know, so the sacrificial system, He takes a cultural practice modifies it, shapes it, takes out child sacrifice, institutes substitution, you know, all these things painstakingly ordered. Why? So that he could set up language in a suitable fashion. So he'd set up a, a culture with an imagination that has language that, that suits God's action in Christ. And, and what uh, what Bell did and, and the, the people he was following was like, hey, well, you know, they, they just pick some really cool images, and I think we can do the same, and let's let's try it, you know? And I just, my, my head just kind of, that, that's when my eyes started twitching. But that's the kind of thing where understanding God's long-range work with Israel is this, in a sense, long-range shaping accommodation, shaping of language, shaping of culture in order to communicate what maybe we wouldn't have had a grid for earlier. Um, and so, so we absolutely need the Old Testament and absolutely need to be careful about, um, yeah, that kind of writing off move. So, And the comment that you make about Bell there really shows how the doctrine of accommodation, from another perspective, feeds directly into our questions about making the gospel and God's truth relevant to culture. There's the doctrine of accommodation there as well. Yeah. Yeah, different ways of contextualizing that. Um, it, no, I'm not. Gonna, that would take us too far. Can I? Can I just? Can I? Am I allowed to ask one more question before we close? Yes. And it just and it, I'd I'd love to get Alistair or Matt or the double-headed monster um, to you get the you get the street reason you know sort of educated-ish street-level question about why it is that you if you're saying that God allowed people to write things in the bible that reflected the knowledge of their day that was that we would no longer affirm in certain take, take something that was something that was an obvious example like no no i'm not going to defend that the earth is built on pillars right and and you take and you're prepared to concede that god allowed them to still use that language even of creation which as matt has said is has got you know is important um 
So why does that not mean that I'm then allowed to go to another text and say, well, I don't particularly like that doctrine, and therefore I'm seeing God as having accommodated himself to their misunderstandings there too? When asked that question at a fairly everyday level, Alistair, like how how would you engage with what because I'm I suppose I'm talking about the nature of subversion of oh, and I totally get I think Matt's correct it was helpful actually expansion as well of theology and anthropology versus what might be seen as being incidental but I'm I'm worried that that actually sounds a little bit too much like well it's matters of facts as opposed to matters of faith I'm just wondering without falling into that pit how you would do that can you just sum up that question in one cent sentence <laughs> what do you do if somebody says you think the you think the bible says this about p the earth being built on pillars and you no longer believe it is so why can't i do the same about a doctrine i don't like like the lord is a warrior yep um well i believe that when god says that the world is built on pillars he's not just um employing a a cultural construct that exists within that society is actually saying something through that and that statement is something that reveals something about the way that the worth the earth really is to us the earth the universe that god has created is like this grand temple this architecture that god has established for himself and so that isn't just um some accommodate some um adaptation for the sake of cultural understanding it's actually telling us something true about the universe we need to understand it on its proper terms not in a, a narrowly literal sense but we need to understand it as something that is revelatory it's not just something a husk that can be taken away and when we're talking about god as a warrior i think also we need to look for instance at god's acts god's the statement that god is a warrior isn't just some statement that hangs in the air it's related to actual works in history where he defeats foreign nations, where um, he puts armies to flight, where he empowers his people to fight against their oppressors. So again, it's not something that should be approached merely on a textual level. It's something that's a historical question as well. Was God actually in at, at work in these events in history? All right. Um, that was extremely helpful. Yeah, so in, in other words, it means something. Both of them mean something. What did it mean? The God is a warrior is going to mean something. And so we, we, we look at the narrative to define that. Um, that was actually much dumber than what Alistair said. But on that note, I was, just trying to like, I was just trying to sum that sucker up, but it didn't work. But hey, I'm the Californian, so you all expect that. Uh we do have to wrap things up. Once again, as usual, the show notes will be at mereorthodoxy.com. We encourage you to head on over to, to read the, the little clips that we've read there. Um, and if you found this helpful, share it around. Give us a rating, a re review. Uh, and uh, may God's grace and peace be with you.